choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? So in that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 145 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Surveyors 2 through 7. Development of the Surveyor spacecraft began in 1961. Detailed design specifications were issued and hardware was built and tested. In May 1963, a mock-up of Surveyor was for the first time mated with Centaur hardware. At the same time, the first functioning prototype of Surveyor was being assembled. Many test design difficulties had to be overcome before Surveyor's complex terminal descent through the lunar vacuum could be simulated on Earth. The descent test problems were solved, however, and the terminal descent system was repeatedly verified before the first mission. In July 1964, the Surveyor prototype went through a mission sequence test for the first time. The prototype was later subjected to many severe environmental performance tests including several simulated transits to the moon under solar thermal vacuum conditions. While the prototype was being tested, SC-1, the first flight spacecraft, was assembled and began its own series of tests. In March 1966, SC-1 was shipped to Cape Kennedy from the Hughes Aircraft Company. After extensive pre-launch tests and preparations, SC-1 was transported to the launch pad. On May 30, 1966, Surveyor was launched on its historic journey to the moon. On June 2, 1966, Surveyor 1 soft-landed on the moon. It returned over 11,000 photos and a large volume of telemetered data. This episode will cover the remaining Surveyor Moon Lander series, The first lander, Surveyor 1, was covered in episode 75, so today I will cover Surveyors 2 through 7. The primary objectives of the Surveyor program were to support the Apollo landings by 1. Developing and validating the technology for landing softly on the moon. 2. Providing data on the compatibility of the Apollo design with conditions encountered on the lunar surface and three, adding to the scientific knowledge of the moon. The Surveyor moon landers were designed and built by a division of Hughes Aircraft Company. Hughes Aircraft Company was a major aerospace and defense contractor founded in 1932 by Howard Hughes in Glendale, California, as a division of Hughes Tool Company. In 1948, Hughes created a new division of the company called the Aerospace Group. The Aerospace Group was further divided into the Space and Communications Group and the Space Systems Division. These two divisions built the world's first geosynchronous communications satellite, CINCOM, in 1963 and followed it closely with the first geosynchronous weather satellite, ATS-1, in 1966. Later that year, Hughes designed and built the Surveyor series beginning with Surveyor No. 1, which made the first soft landing on the moon. The Surveyor program was managed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, in Los Angeles County, California. Now I'm going to describe the physical aspects of the basic Surveyor spacecraft structure. It consisted of a tripod of thin walled aluminum tubing and interconnecting braces 
providing mounting services and attachments for the power communications, propulsion, flight control, and payload systems. A central mast extended about one meter above the apex of the tripod. Three hinged landing legs were attached to the lower corners of the structure. The legs held shock absorbers, crushable honeycomb aluminum blocks, and the deployment and locking mechanism, and terminated in foot pads with crushable bottoms. The three foot pads extended out 4.3 meters from the center of the surveyor. The spacecraft was about 3 meters tall. The legs folded to fit into a nose shroud for launch. A 0.855 square meter array of 792 solar cells was mounted on a positioner on top of the mast and generated up to 85 watts of power, which was stored in rechargeable silver-zinc batteries. Communications were achieved via a movable, large, planar array high-gain antenna mounted near the top of the central mast to transmit television images. Two omnidirectional conical antennas mounted on the ends of folding booms for uplink and downlink, two receivers and two transmitters. Thermal control was achieved by a combination of white paint, high infrared emittance thermal finish, and polished aluminum underside. Two thermally controlled compartments equipped with super insulating blankets, conductive heat pads, thermal switches, and small electric heaters were mounted on the spacecraft structure. The communications and power supply compartments were held at 5 to 50 degrees C. The command and signal processing components compartment was held between minus 20 and 50 degrees C. The TV survey camera was mounted near the top of the tripod and strain gauges, temperature sensors, and other engineering instruments were incorporated throughout the spacecraft. One, the photometric targets was mounted near the end of the landing leg and another on a short boom extending from the bottom of the structure. Other payload packages, which differed from mission to mission, were mounted on various parts of the structure depending upon their function. A sun sensor, canopus tracker, and rate gyros on three axes provided attitude information. Propulsion and attitude control were provided by nitrogen attitude control jets during cruise phases. During the powered phases, including landing, three throttleable linear rocket engines were used, and during terminal descent, a solid propellant retro rocket was used. The retro rocket was a spherical steel case mounted in the bottom center of the spacecraft. Each thrust chamber of the veneer engines could produce 130 newtons to 460 newtons of thrust, and one engine could swivel for roll control. The fuel was stored in spherical tanks mounted to the tripod structure. For the landing sequence, an attitude-marking radar initiated the firing of the main retro rocket for primary braking. After the firing was complete, the retro rocket and radar were jettisoned and the Doppler and altimeter radars were activated. These provided information to the autopilot, which controlled the veneer propulsion system to touchdown. Okay, let's move on to the missions. Surveyor 2 was designed as a follow-on to the highly successful Surveyor 1 mission. It was launched on September 20, 1966 aboard an Atlas LV-3C and a Centaur-D rocket at Cape Canaveral Launch Complex 36A. The target landing area was within the Cenus Medii. However, during the mid-course maneuver, one veneer engine failed to ignite, resulting in an unbalanced thrust that caused the spacecraft to tumble. Attempts to salvage the mission failed, and it impacted the moon, 
on September 23, 1966, at 3.18 Universal Time in the vicinity of 5.5 degrees north by 12 degrees west. Here's the clip for Surveyor 2. In September 1966, SC-2 was launched. Unfortunately, a malfunction occurred during mid-course. After repeated attempts to correct the problem, the retro rocket was fired, and all contact with the spacecraft was lost two seconds later. Now let's move on to Surveyor 3. Surveyor 3 was the second spacecraft of the Surveyor series to achieve a lunar soft landing. The specific objectives for its mission were to 1. perform a soft landing on the moon within the Apollo zone and east of the Surveyor 1 landing site. 2. obtain post-landing television pictures of the lunar surface. 3. obtain information on lunar surface bearing strength, radar reflectivity, and thermal properties. And 4. Use the surface sampler to manipulate the lunar surface and observe the effects with the television camera. Surveyor 3 was similar in design to Surveyors 1 and 2, but had several changes in the payload. It carried a survey television camera, soil mechanics experiments, and devices to measure temperature and radar reflectivity as on the earlier missions but the TV camera had an extended glare hood. A surface sampler consisting of a 12 centimeter long by 5 centimeter wide scoop mounted on a 1.5 meter panograph arm replaced the approach television camera. Two flat auxiliary mirrors were attached to the frame to provide the camera with a view of the ground beneath the engines and one of the footpads. Surveyor 3 had a mass of 1,026 kilograms at launch and 296 kilograms at landing. Surveyor 3 was launched at 7.05 Universal Time on April 17, 1967 by an Atlas Centaur from Cape Canaveral Launch Complex 36B. After separation from the Atlas, the Centaur burned for approximately five minutes, putting the spacecraft into a 167-kilometer circular Earth parking orbit. The Centaur was restarted 22 minutes, 9 seconds later, injecting the spacecraft into a selenographic trajectory. A mid-course maneuver 21.9 hours after liftoff aimed the surveyor toward the selected landing point. On April 20th at 1.06 Universal Time, at 76 kilometers altitude, traveling at 2,626 meters per second, the Veneer and main retro rocket were ignited by a signal from the altitude marking radar, slowing the spacecraft to 137 meters per second at time of retro burnout and ejection. Descent continued under control of the Veneer engines and the Doppler and altimeter radars. A few seconds before touchdown, the radars lost their lock, apparently due to high scintillating reflections from the landing site. The guidance system automatically switched to an inertially controlled mode which prevented Veneer engine cutoff. Touchdown on the surface occurred three times because the veneer engines continued to fire during the first two touchdowns causing the spacecraft to lift off the surface. The distance between the first and second touchdown sites was about 20 meters and between the second and the third was 11 meters. Engines were shut off 34 seconds after initial touchdown by an engine cutoff command transmitted from the ground. Initial touchdown occurred at 4.17 Universal Time and final touchdown at 4.53 Universal Time on October 20, 1967. As if all the hopping around was not enough, the spacecraft slid about 30 centimeters following final touchdown. Surveyor 3 came to rest on a 14-degree slope 
inside a subdued 200-meter crater in southeast Ocean of Storms, roughly 370 kilometers south of the Copernicus Crater. Here's a clip. Because its radar altimeter and Doppler velocity sensor locked lock, Surveyor 3's Bernier engines did not cut off, and the spacecraft made three soft landings before coming to rest about halfway down the side of a crater 650 feet in diameter and 50 feet deep. Initial photos were received within an hour of landing and the surface sampler was used two days later. Surveyor operated throughout the lunar day until after local sunset on March 3rd. The lunar sampler was operated for a total of 18 hours, 22 minutes, digging trenches as deep as 18 centimeters, and the television camera returned 6,326 pictures, a large volume of new data on the strength, texture, and structure of lunar material was transmitted by the spacecraft. Images of an eclipse of the sun by the Earth and related thermal measurements were recorded. The last data were returned on May 4, 1967 at 004 Universal Time and Surveyor 3 failed to come back to life following the two-week lunar night. Excessive glare in some of the images has been attributed to dust or erosion effects on the mirror due to the extended operations of the engines during touchdown. All Surveyor 3 mission objectives were accomplished. Here's a newsreel. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Workers watch a living milestone in America's space exploration. Surveyor 3 is about to touch down on the lunar surface. The best landing ever. On target, the first photo shows its own antenna. A model of the three-legged moon robot demonstrates equipment used to probe lunar land. It's a surface sampler which scrapes, digs, and drills. Tests of the space shovel proved its ability to dig two feet into the ground. It also cracked one-inch thick concrete. Powered by four motors, it can probe an area 24 feet square. The real moonship sent back pictures of soil samples, proving the moon surface is firm enough to support great weights. Well done, surveyor. Now for the really cool part. As an historical postscript, on November 19, 1969, the Apollo 12 lunar module landed within about 180 meters of the Surveyor 3 spacecraft. Astronauts Pete Conrad and Alan Bean visited the spacecraft on their second moonwalk on November 20th, examining Surveyor 3 and its surroundings, taking photographs, and removing about 10 kilograms of parts from the spacecraft, including the TV camera. These items would be examined once they return to Earth. The Surveyor 3 camera is now on display in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Now, here's a clip of Pete Conrad and Alan Bean's encounter with Surveyor 3. Okay. Alright, you see that, that uh, material disintegrating? Hey, that cut easy. 
Now let's move on to Surveyor 4. Surveyor 4 was launched on July 14, 1967 aboard an Atlas LV-3C and a Centaur-D rocket at Cape Canaveral, Complex 36A. After a flawless flight to the moon, radio signals from the spacecraft ceased during the terminal descent phase on July 17, 1967, approximately two and a half minutes before touchdown. Contact with the spacecraft was never re-established and the mission was unsuccessful. The original landing target was 0.4 degrees north by 1.33 degrees west. The impact site is unknown. It is possible the solid fuel retro rocket exploded near the end of its scheduled burn. Here's the clip for Surveyor 4. SC-4 was launched in July 1967. Unfortunately, all contact was lost just before touchdown, which of several possible failure modes occurred had not been determined. Moving on to Surveyor number 5. Surveyor 5 was the third spacecraft in the Surveyor series to achieve a successful lunar soft landing and the first mission to obtain in situ compositional data on the moon. The specific objectives for this mission were to perform a soft landing on the moon in the Sea of Tranquility and obtain post-landing television pictures of the lunar surface. The secondary objectives were to conduct a veneer engine erosion experiment, determine the relative abundance of the chemical elements in the lunar soil by operation of the alpha scattering instrument, obtain touchdown dynamic data, and obtain thermal and radar reflectivity data. Surveyor 5 was launched on September 8, 1967 at 7.57 Universal Time from Launch Complex 36B at Cape Canaveral on an Atlas Centaur rocket. The Centaur placed the spacecraft into an Earth parking orbit and then restarted 6.7 minutes later and injected Surveyor 5 into a lunar transfer trajectory. A mid-course trajectory correction involving a 14.29 second firing of the Veneer engines was performed at 1.45 universal time on September 9th. Immediately following the maneuver, the spacecraft began losing helium pressure. It was concluded that the helium pressure valve had not receded tightly and the helium was leaking into the propellant tanks, causing an overpressure which opened the relief valves, discharging the helium. A new emergency landing plan was quickly adopted. Early veneer engine firings were made while there was still helium to slow the spacecraft, reduce its mass, and leave more free volume in the propellant tanks for the helium. The burn of the main retro rocket was delayed at an altitude of 1,300 meters and a velocity of 30 meters per second, rather than the planned 10,700 meters at 120 meters per second. The new descent profile worked flawlessly, and Surveyor 5 touched down on the lunar surface on September 11, 1967 at 46 minutes universal time at 1.461 degrees north by 23.195 degrees east on a 20-degree slope of a 9 by 12-meter rimless crater in the southwest Sea of Tranquility. Touchdown was 29 kilometers from the original target. All experiments were performed successfully. Surveyor 5 returned 18,006 television pictures during its first lunar day. The alpha scattering instrument was deployed and performed the first in situ analysis of an extraterrestrial body, returning 83 hours of data on lunar soil composition during the first lunar day. A veneer engine erosion experiment was conducted on September 13th, about 53 hours after landing, consisting of a firing of the veneer engines 
for 0.55 seconds while the spacecraft sat on the ground to examine the effects of the engines on the surface. The spacecraft shut down from September 24 to October 15, 1967 over the first lunar night. An additional 1,048 pictures and 22 hours of alpha scattering data were received during the second lunar day. On October 18th, Surveyor 5 acquired thermal data during a total eclipse of the sun. Transmissions for the second lunar day were received until November 1st, 1967. When shutdown for the second lunar day occurred about 200 hours after sunset, Transmissions were resumed on the third and fourth lunar days, with the final transmission occurring at 4.30 Universal Time on December 17, 1967. Pictures were transmitted during the first, second, and fourth lunar days. A total of 19,118 pictures were transmitted. Alpha scattering results indicated soil composition resembling Earth basaltic rock of 53% to 63% oxygen, 15.5% to 21.5% silicon, 10 to 16% sulfur, iron, cobalt, and nickel, 45 to 8.5% aluminum, and small quantities of magnesium, carbon, and sodium. The quantity of material adhering to the magnet was consistent with a mixture of pulverized basalt and 10-12% to 12% magnetite with no more than 1% metallic iron. The veneer engine experiment produced minor but observable erosion of the surface. All mission objectives were accomplished. Here's the clip for Surveyor 5. Though Surveyor 5 did not carry a surface sampler, footpad number 2 dug its own trench as the spacecraft skidded down into a small crater. The lunar soil appeared almost identical to that seen at the previous landing site. Surveyor 5 carried an alpha scattering instrument. Analysis of that instrument's findings indicated that the composition of the lunar surface material is close to that of common terrestrial basalt. The magnetic materials test results agreed with that analysis. Next up we have Surveyor 6. It was the fourth of the Surveyor series to successfully achieve a soft landing on the moon. The specific primary objectives for this mission were to perform a soft landing on the moon in the Cenus Medii region and obtain post-landing television pictures of the lunar surface. The secondary objectives were to determine the relative abundance of the chemical elements in the lunar soil by operation of the alpha scattering instrument, to obtain touchdown dynamics data, to obtain thermal and radar reflectivity data, and to conduct a veneer engine erosion experiment. Surveyor 6 was launched on November 7, 1967 at 7.39 Universal Time from Launch Complex 36B. The Atlas Centaur booster put the spacecraft into an initial Earth parking orbit from which it was injected into a lunar transfer trajectory at 8.03 Universal Time. A mid-course correction maneuver was performed at 2.20 Universal Time on November 8th. And Surveyor touched down on the lunar surface on November 10th, 1967 at 1.01 Universal Time in Cenus Medii, a flat, heavily cratered mare region at 0.49 degrees north, 358.6 degrees east, the center of the moon's visible hemisphere. On November 17th at 10.32 Universal Time, the veneer engines were fired for two and a half seconds, causing Surveyor to lift off the lunar surface three to four meters and land about 2.4 meters west of its original position. This lunar hop represented the first intentional powered takeoff from the lunar surface 
and furnished new information on the effects of firing rocket engines on the moon. It also allowed viewing of the original landing site and provided a baseline for stereoscopic viewing and photogrammetric mapping of the surrounding terrain. The mission transmitted images until a few hours after sunset on November 24th, returning a total of 29,952 images. The Alpha scattering equipment acquired 30 hours of data on the surface material. The spacecraft was placed into hibernation for the lunar night on November 26th. Contact with the spacecraft was resumed on December 14th for a short period, but no useful data was returned, and the last transmission was received at 1914 Universal Time on December 14, 1967. The results of the experiments showed that the surface had a basaltic composition similar to that found at the Surveyor 5 landing site. Engineering and soil mechanics data indicated the bearing strength of the surface was more than adequate to support human landings. This spacecraft accomplished all planned objectives. Here's the clip for Surveyor 6. Surveyor 6's scientific payload duplicated that of 5, and its analysis of the lunar material also duplicated that found by 5, 460 miles east. Surveyor 6 returned over 30,000 photos, more than all three previously successful flights together. And lastly, we have Surveyor 7 which was the fifth and final spacecraft of the Surveyor series to achieve a lunar soft landing. The specific objectives for this mission were to 1. Perform a lunar soft landing in a highland area well removed from the Maria to provide a type of terrain photography and lunar sample significantly different from those of other surveyor missions. Objective 2. Obtain post-landing TV pictures. 3. Determine the relative abundance of chemical elements. 4. Manipulate the lunar material. 5. Obtain touchdown dynamic data. and 6. Obtain thermal and radar reflectivity data. Surveyor 7 was the only surveyor craft to land in the Lunar Highland region. Surveyor 7 was launched at 6.30 Universal Time on January 7, 1968 with an Atlas Centaur from Launch Complex 36A. Touchdown on the Moon occurred at 1.05 Universal Time on January 10, 1968 at 40 0.86 degrees south by 348.53 degrees east on an ejecta blanket about 29 miles north of the rim of the Tycho crater in the lunar highlands. Science operations commenced shortly after landing. The TV camera returned 20,993 pictures on the first lunar day. The alpha scattering instrument failed to deploy fully, but the surface sampler was used to force it to the ground. The sampler was later used to set the alpha scattering instrument on a rock and then into a trench it had dug. Approximately 66 hours of alpha scattering data were obtained during the first lunar day on the three sites. Operations were continued after sunset and included pictures of the Earth, stars, and the solar corona. Operation was terminated at 1412 Universal Time on January 26, 80 hours after sunset. The second lunar day operations began at 1901 Universal Time on February 12, 1968 and included an additional 45 pictures for a total of 21,038 and 34 hours of alpha scattering data from inside the trench. Operations were terminated on February 21st. 
The lunar surface sampler operated flawlessly for a total of 36 hours, 21 minutes, digging trenches and moving and manipulating four rocks. Results were generally consistent with earlier missions, except that the chemical analysis of the highland crust showed it to be poorer in iron group elements than the previous samples, all from the lunar Maria. The magnetic experiments showed the presence of magnetic constituents in amounts comparable to those at the Surveyor 5 and 6 sites. Lander also successfully detected laser beams transmitted from Earth. The mission objectives were fully satisfied by this spacecraft. Here's the clip on Surveyor 7. Since potential Apollo landing sites had been adequately surveyed, SC-7 was assigned a scientific mission in an area just north of the crater Tycho. The spacecraft landed safely in the rockiest area yet encountered by a surveyor and supplied a vast amount of new data. The story of surveyor is measured in more than just five successful missions. Surveyor accomplished what it set out to do. For the Apollo mission, surveyor demonstrated conclusively that the moon, made up at least in part of materials comparable to those on Earth, can support man and his machines. The surveyor spacecraft probed the physical and chemical nature of the moon and transmitted thousands of photographs. To land a man on the moon remains a national goal. Surveyor has contributed immeasurably to achieving that goal. Now here is the final clip from JPL and Dr. Pickering Summing up the Surveyor Program. The moon, not nearly as mysterious as it used to be, has been photographed, landed on, dug into, and chemically sampled. Surveyor 7 was the last in a series of unmanned spacecraft to land there. Reflecting on Surveyor's contributions, Dr. William Pickering, Director, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Surveyor accomplished everything that we had hoped for from that mission. Five out of the seven surveyors which were launched landed successfully on the surface of the moon and operated on the surface. Uh, with the surveyor photograph, we were able to show that uh, a landing, a manned spacecraft on the moon, is quite a reasonable undertaking. Uh, and, and in fact, that the man will be able to walk on the surface of the moon without danger of falling through or sinking into the dust at any great depth. Uh, we were able to measure the bearing strength of the surface. We were able to get the uh, general appearance of the surface to point out that, there were, uh, that uh, in certain areas of the moon, at least, there were not very many large rocks which would have to be contended with, uh, but there were, of course, numerous smaller and smaller craters. We also found the first chemical analysis of the surface of the moon by Professor Turkovich's experiment, and this showed that in the areas that we landed, the rocks, or the surface material, rather, was very similar to a basalt here on the Earth. Uh, we were also able to dig in the surface and get an idea of the, uh, of the feel of the surface as uh, we went down a little bit below the surface. Uh, for a matter of a few inches, uh, the uh, material is, is very much like a soft sand. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 145 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Surveyors 2 through 7 with a little Apollo 12. Space Rocket History is a proud member of the History Podcasters and the Tech Podcasting Network. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed. And extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I am glad you're here. 
And a special salute today to my Moon Emoticon donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row and are rewarded with their names on the donor page and a rocket and moon emoticon. Thanks for your continued support, Moon Emoticon donors. Now, a little old business. I would like to apologize to my Australian listeners for my mispronouncing the name of two important cities last week. This is how I think they are pronounced. Woomera and Canberra, or to save time, Canberra. Thank you, Falcon124, John Paul, and Skibby for helping me out with that. Moving on, I am getting really excited about the three-year anniversary of the podcast, which should fall on episode 150. Only four more episodes left to reach 150 episodes. I need to check on the Tang situation here. (laughs) I had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. For a while there, it seemed like only the odd-numbered surveyors were going to successfully land, like 1, 3, and 5. It took all the way to Surveyor 6 for an even-numbered surveyor to successfully land on the moon. (laughs) I don't know if that means anything, but it just kind of struck me that way. Well, of course, the favorite surveyor mission for me was number three. It's not just the successful mission, it's more the connection to Apollo 12. You see, I got to witness the Apollo 12 launch in person down at the Cape when I was nine years old. Then, when I came home, I got to see the astronauts, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean, visit the surveyor on the moon. They got their landing precise enough that the surveyor was within walking distance. That is amazing. It was so cool. I'm telling you, to see this on TV, it was just amazing. It was as though the surveyor had been waiting for them for two and a half years. The astronauts walked over to the surveyor doing tasks as they went along, and then they reached it. They described it to Houston, and they took pictures, and then they even retrieved parts off of it, bringing them back to Earth. That was absolutely amazing. Man, I love that mission there. I guess it's probably because I got a little emotionally involved in that one, huh? Anyway, I have posted several pictures for this episode on the website spacerockethistory.com. You'll want to see the surveyor because my description in words is just not adequate. You really have to see it. If you can look at the pictures and and listen to my description, that would be ideal. So if you want to do that, just go to the website and play the episode and you can see the pictures as I describe it. Okay, I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Chris S., also known as Skibby from Australia, donated at the Soyuz level. Thank you, Chris. Akim D. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoticon. Michael G. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level and earned his Rocket Emoticon. Thank you, Michael. Now, uh, I got a different one kind of donation here. This is uh, Tim R. of Beacon, New York, sent me a very nice calendar that he created. The calendar shows the dates of key events for the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions. He does this. He is the sole producer of the calendar, and he does this on an annual basis. It's a very beautiful calendar, and you can see it. At this URL, I'm going to give the, you the URL. It's called Mission Steps to the Moon. Tumblr.com. Now, if you didn't get that, you can replay it or you can just go to the uh, show notes and I'll put the link there so you can click on it. Tim wanted me to remind everybody that if you visit that page, you can download a free. PDF version of the calendar. Thanks, Tim. William A. raised his pledge on Patreon to the Salute 
slash Skylab level, becoming the first donor ever at that level. Thanks, William A. And if you're out there and you would like to be the first at a level, there are three levels left. ISS level, Mir level, and shuttle level. Thank you very much, William A., for being first there. And last, we have Guido T. from Australia, who increased his pledge to the Apollo level on Patreon, and he has earned his rocket and moon emoticon. Thank you very much, Guido. We are now at 35 Patreon donors, and we're trying to reach 50 by the end of the year. That was our goal last year. So I just extended it a little bit since we didn't quite make it. The overall donors for the year have gone up to 47, with a goal of reaching 250 by the end of the year. Keep in mind, everyone that donated in 2015, your rocket emoticon is ready for you when you with your 2016 donation. And for those who donated the past two years in a row, the treasured moon emoticon is waiting for you. And to those who have never donated, please consider supporting the podcast. It doesn't have to be a lot. Certainly not more than you can afford. The minimum donation is only $5, or you can use Patreon to donate as little as $0.50 per month. The podcast is entirely listener-supported, so I depend upon your support to keep the podcast working. All donors are rewarded with their names on the donor page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. You can make a one-time donation now by clicking on the orange Donate button on the homepage, or if you prefer, you can click on the Patreon link on the homepage and donate a small amount monthly. Stay up to date on the podcast, including previews of the next episode. Please follow me on Twitter and Facebook. The links are on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I want to thank those who follow me on Twitter. I think we're around 503 followers. And thanks to those who like the Facebook page, we're up to 731. want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters. Jet City Star, 1202 Alarm, Aviatrix, Buddy P. Murphy, Hogfoot, Futurama King, Glenn Trudgett, James 2904, Kadavi 1202, Renz Loing, E.G. Robert, Skibby, Stephen Lebowski, this is Alex Boyd, Andy Cox, Falcon124, Two Rule, Stiggy, Freedom From Ourselves, Jacob Hahn, Cole Badger, Generic Sequence, Bennett Can Tweet, and GSY Drummer. I really appreciate it. If I missed anyone, let me know and I will get you next week. This is the end of content for this episode, and I had a few off-topic thoughts. If you're interested, stick around. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Last week, I told you I would cover Surveyors 3 through 6. Once I got into it, I just decided to go ahead and cover all the remain, remaining Surveyors, 2 through 7. Remember, 2 was a failure, but uh, I thought I would get them all now because the last one, 7, was in very early part of 1968, so... Figured it'd just be better just to cover them all right now and not have to go back and pick up number seven sometime later when we're on the year 1968. Next week's episode will be on January 28th, and it will be episode 146. I plan to cover the Saturn S2 stage. And once we do that, then we will have completed our Saturn V stack, and we'll be ready to move on to Apollo Four. I'm excited about moving to Apollo 4, and Walter Cronkite is excited too, and you'll find out why. <laughs> In other podcast news, I was delighted that William A. took up the challenge and became the first Solute Skylab donor. Thank you very much, William A. In personal news, I told you last week that I had to take my wife for some outpatient surgery. If you would like to know, I can give you more details on that. This is kind of how the story went. About two years ago, my wife got a small cut just below her left eye. Well, the problem came when the cut did not heal right, leaving a, a divot in her skin. 
We eventually got it checked out, and the doctor didn't think it was a problem, so he cut her again and put a stitch in. He also took a sample of her skin and had it analyzed, which turned out to be non-cancerous. So we're thinking at that point everything's okay. But as time passed, the divot returned to her skin. This time the doctor wanted to have it surgically removed, and that's what happened on Friday. Unfortunately, it wasn't as simple as that. During the operation, he cut out what he believed to be the problem area and had it analyzed, and it turned out to be an aggressive form of cancer called basal squamous. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. I'm not sure. That's what I remember him saying. The analysis also showed that the doctor did not get all of the tumor, and he had to go back in and get the rest. He was able to get it all the second try, and which was good. In total, the operation took about two hours. The doctor came out and told us that he did not think the cancer had spread anywhere else, which pretty much relieved us a whole lot. And uh, now she just has to be monitored closely to make sure no more tumors form. I think what happened is that cut was exposed to too much sunlight. And, uh, you know, I'm not a doctor. This is just what I think happened. It was exposed to too much sunlight, and that might have formed the cancer. That's kind of what I think happened. But, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Now, I've given you a lot of details mainly so you, my friends and listeners, will take care of yourselves. And if you have any suspicious marks going on with your skin, please, please, please go get that checked out as soon as possible. If it turns out to be nothing, then it's good. And you can have peace of mind. But if it is something, you want to treat it just as soon as possible. The sooner, the better. Over the past three years of producing this podcast, I have made many friends all over the world. And I appreciate you guys so much. So please take care of yourself. Okay, that's all I have today. Hope to have episode number 146 up by next Thursday. So long for now.